I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the Lord is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in about 1781, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, he decided to have a little bit of fun. He, he took a French folk song and he made variations of it. He took 12 different variations, in fact, and he rewrote this song specifically to this tune. And then he put it into a 13-minute performance. So we're going to take a few minutes here and we're going to listen to just a few minutes of this song by Mozart.
Name that tune. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle, little star. I didn't even know this was a French folk song until I started researching for this sermon. So we call that song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, don't we? It's also used for Ba Ba Black Sheep and the alphabet song, isn't it, in English? Now, Mozart, he's not the only composer to ever have done anything like this. And in fact, a lot of composers, they'd use this same technique. If you'll start paying attention to the movies and the TV shows that you uh, watch, you'll notice that their songs are playing in the background. And as those songs play in the background, they're woven through telling the story, helping to tell the story. And there are variations to those songs. And they're hoping to bring about certain emotions to the audience as they do those things. So this idea of musical variations is to first present the song as it is written. We heard the song just the way that we all know it first, and then you start in on the different variations. So after the, the song is played and it is replayed with all these modifications and elaborations and all those sorts of things, but you see there's a key to this thing. There's an important part of the actual song because certain elements of the song have got to be retained. Because the audience has to be able to still hear the song, don't we? And so all of those variations have to have the same core subject playing out in relationship to the rest of the song. So composers do this to bring unity to the piece. That, that way they can continue to use their creative expression to do all sorts of things while all, at the same time keeping everything together. They, they let their imaginations run wild. And so almost everyone who enjoys being creative, they don't want to be hampered by a bunch of rules, do they? They want to be able to color outside the line sometimes. And so the reason I bring this up to you is because the creativity of Paul's writing is also the same thing that we hear in the song. We see it in paintings and drawings and poems and short stories and novels. And so Paul, he does the same thing in his writings. He, he takes this subject, this theme, and then he has variations of it throughout. And we're not talking about just in one particular book. We're talking about in all of his writings. He has the same theme running throughout his letters, but there are varieties to it. So this morning's reading is one of the more obvious variations. So we pick up in verse 23 of chapter 10. He repeats something that we have already heard. If, if you've been listening to this sermon series, you know we've already covered part of what he is saying this morning. He, he tells us all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Now, now, we need to remember back to something Paul said a few Sundays ago in chapter 6. In writing, we call what this variation thing is, we call a recapitulation, or we sometimes shorten it to a recap, right? And so the whole point is to remind the reader, the audience, us, of this main point. But you see, Paul, he doesn't just recap here, he also begins to refine this point. He, he wants to get down to a specific thing he wants us to understand. So if we pay careful attention, we notice that in this recap and refine statement, Paul actually takes that original statement and then he leaves something out. If you remember several weeks ago when we talked about all things being beneficial, all things being lawful, there are actually two words that were used there that Paul is leaving out now. He said, all things are lawful for me. But he doesn't say that this time. So over the last several verses, we've been challenged to see our Christian life as something that's not self-focused. But instead, our Christian life is actually faith community focused. There's one body. There's one cup. We are one body. We share one bread. Which means that the decisions that we make do indeed affect everyone else in the body. 
And so that's why Paul has been telling us to, to limit ourselves on what we do. That's why he encourages us not to do things that cause other people in our faith community to stumble, because when they stumble, guess what? We also stumble. And so as we dig into this passage, Paul, he picks up a new theme, one that we have not heard before, at least not in 1 Corinthians. And that is dealing with this one particular word, conscience. Let's listen to what he says again. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I mean the other's conscience, not your own. So here it is, conscience. This, this is the key word we're looking at today. And so it's actually another variation of a theme that Paul has other places. What we need to understand is that, that Paul takes this well-known word, conscience, and he adjusts it in order for the Corinthians to understand what it means to be a part of a faith community. Conscience, it, it literally means sharing knowledge with oneself. It's the act of thinking through a situation. I love what one scholar says. He, he says that it's a type of split personality. And so what he means by that is that through our conscience, we are both the judge and we are the one being judged at the same time. Now, historically, the, the Greeks of the first century, they understood conscience in a little bit of a different way. The conscience was simply there in order to be this inner witness to what you had already done. So you would share the knowledge of what you have already done with yourself, and so your conscience was there to judge whether what you had done was right or wrong. So let me give you an example of the way the Greeks were thinking during this first century. Let's say that someone had made you extremely angry about something, and then out of your anger you, you struck that person, causing them to die. Now, according to the, the Greek understanding of this, your conscience does not tell you whether murder is right or wrong. It, instead, all that it is telling you is that in this one particular case, when you struck this person and they died, are you in the right or are you in the wrong? It doesn't necessarily govern any other acts of killing, whether by you or anyone else. So we call this judicial conscience. Our self-awareness is only after the act has been completed. But you see, Paul, he, he wants to broaden this understanding for these first century Christians. He wants to uh, uh, broaden the meaning of the word conscience. And what he tells us here, and in some of his other writings that we're going to talk about in just a second, is that because we are bound in this faith community together, our conscience, our, our self-awareness, must reach out in both directions. We, we can't just be self-aware after we have done something. We should actually be self-aware before we do something. That's called legislative conscience. So our self-awareness and our understanding of what it means to be bound in community with other people, that means that we must allow our self-awareness to dictate how we act, dictate our behavior. Our conscience should not act just as a judge, but it, it should also be out there acting as a legislature that keeps us from doing harmful things before we actually do them, and not just feeling bad about after we've done it. So let me share with you from Romans 14. 
Paul, he takes this idea of legislative conscience on a particular topic that the people were talking about in that particular church. It's a topic about what you do about certain days of the year, whether you observe certain days as being holy or not. So listen to what Paul tells him. He says, Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. So what he's saying here is that through your own self-awareness, if you believe, if you honestly believe that certain days of the year, whether it be a Sunday or Good Friday or Christmas Eve or some other day out there, if you believe that those days are set aside for a specific reason as a special day, then by all means, live into that reality. Don't call it a special day and then go out there and act like it's any other day, he says. Use that day as a special day to worship God and to celebrate being a Christian. But, here's the kicker, that doesn't mean that everyone else out there has to observe that day the same way you do. Let your conscience legislate how you choose to treat the day. And that brings us back to today's reading. We're back to this meat sacrifice to idols. We've talked about this before. If your conscience allows you to eat the meat, then go out there and eat the meat. However, unlike these special days he talks about in Romans, by you eating or serving meat sacrifice to idols, if it causes problems for others in the faith community, then out of respect for them, he says, we should allow those people's conscience to actually legislate our behavior. Now, there's actually a broader picture here. We're not too worried about eating meat sacrificed to idols in our day and time, are we? But this broader picture is actually something we need to understand from the perspective of morality, or more specific, moral judgments. For a long, long time, different churches tried to dictate morality for its members. The denomination that I was raised in, they had a really tight hold on us as people. We weren't allowed to dance. We were not allowed to drink alcohol. We were not allowed to go swimming with people of the opposite gender. And so we had to learn this one little phrase that we had to apply to our entire life. The idea was basically this. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run around with the girls who do. (laughs) But there's a problem with that, church. There's a problem with this way of thinking. Morals are not necessarily something that can be dictated. In fact, moral authority is simply the the capacity of one person to convince everyone else how they should behave themselves. I didn't really become aware of this until my oldest daughter was in high school. She was transitioning from freshman to sophomore year, and right before school started that year, we got a letter from the school. And it told us, we have a brand new dress code this year, and y'all are going to have to abide by this thing. And so we're like, okay, that's fine. We'll do whatever we need to do. So we went school shopping, and we made sure that we had all of these new rules in the back of our minds that our daughter was not allowed to wear certain shorts. In fact, none of the girls were allowed to wear certain shorts. And the shorts they couldn't wear were shorts that were longer, or they were shorter than when they put their hand down by their side. Their fingertips could not be longer than their shorts actually were. And so we went out shopping for these shorts. 
Now, when we headed out that day, I had no idea how much of a nightmare that this shopping excursion was going to be because every single pair of shorts that that child tried on, they were too short. They would not meet the dress code. Now, I looked at what she was trying on, and there was nothing wrong with it from my perspective. They didn't look too short to me. They just looked like shorts. They weren't revealing any body parts they shouldn't reveal, and they weren't too tight. They just looked normal to me. And yet, not a single pair of shorts that she tried on met that school's morality dress code. And that, church, is the problem with trying to dictate morality. What I find acceptable, someone else might find revolting. What I find to be too promiscuous, someone else might see as being perfectly fine. Which brings us back into Paul's reading. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And Paul's exactly right. It's our conscience that is key here. Instead of just using judicial conscience, this, this conscience that, that condemns us, a conscience that, that makes us feel guilty about everything we do, we should learn to lean into this legislative conscience. What we need to be doing as a, as a group of people is to be willing to ask some questions. If I do this thing, if, if I choose to behave in this way, how does it affect my faith community? We have to consider the basic reasons we do anything in life. So we're going to take a minute this morning. We're going to take a minute and, and become a little bit more self-aware. We're going to allow our conscience to come from the back of our minds all the way to the front. It, it's going to take central stage here. Now, I'm going to ask some questions in a minute. You're going to answer them silently. And no one can answer these questions for you. Your, your spouse can't, your kids can't, your parents can't, nobody can. Only you can answer these questions. So let me ask the question and you think about it for a second. Why do you do whatever it is you do? And I don't mean for a living, like a profession. I mean anything. Why do you choose to speed? Why do you choose not to speed? Why do you choose to use the blinker? Or why do you choose not to use the blinker? Every single thing you do, why do you do it? Why do you choose to dress the way that you dress? Why do you choose to eat the food you eat? And why do you choose to drink what you drink? Why do you use certain words? Or more specifically, why do you choose not to use certain words? So what is your motivation? What's your basic motivation for doing anything in life that you do? Now, in my personal experience, the church that I was a part of, it taught us to be motivated from a place of guilt. We were made to feel guilty if we did certain things or behaved certain ways. But you see, the thing is, nowhere in Paul's writing are we encouraged to be motivated by guilt. Some of us are motivated out of a desire to, that if we do certain things or if we refrain from doing certain things that, that God will find us worthy for some special reward. 
But you see, that's unscriptural. That's works-based righteousness, and God doesn't work that way. Some of us are perhaps motivated by doing good deeds so that we can be seen by other people, whether it's parents or children or even other people in our local church. Because when they see us doing these good deeds, then we get praise for it. It makes us feel good about ourselves when they talk about us. We long for that affirmation, don't we? But that's really not a good reason either because we're told the left hand and the right hand are not supposed to know what the other is doing. So this morning, Paul, he's reminding us that all of those motivations, they're not good reasons. They're not good reasons for doing what we do. In fact, according to Paul, there's only one good reason for doing anything. And that church is to do things that brings glory to God. We should do our things from a place of gratefulness, a, a place of thanksgiving, grateful for the love that Jesus Christ himself showed to us long before we could even fathom what love meant or what love is. Grateful for the fact that God's overwhelming grace surrounds us. God's grace consumes us and even carries us forward on those days that we have been motivated for all the wrong reasons. When we're motivated from a place of gratefulness, we find ourselves reaching out in a loving way towards other people, regardless of all the stuff regardless of how they look or what they're wearing or how they're acting or even what they believe. Because love is what calls us to seek the good in other people. And seeking that good, it's really not an option. In fact, church, that's the basic faithful Christian way of life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may the grace and peace of Jesus be with you today. Amen.